Hi, my name is Robert Sapolsky. I'm a professor at Stanford. I'm a half a neurobiologist and half a primatologist. Robert Sapolsky has a look. He kind of reminds me of the singer Robert Plant meets Zach Galifianakis. Like, seriously, Google this guy. He's got this big bushy beard, long hair. He just looks the part of a 1970s scientist. So it seems fitting that he once spent a summer with a chimpanzee named Nim at Columbia University. I spent the whole summer hanging out with Nim. One of my like all-time best memories was one Saturday morning. So it was one of those off days and they decided that like, sure, let's, (laughs) you want to go take Nim to Central Park for the day? That would be nice. To Robert, this was heaven. Hanging out in Central Park and playing with a chimp and having tickle fights. 90% of what Nim communicated about was asking the world to tickle him. And you cannot believe anything more pleasurable than getting to tickle a chimp. And when it's all over with, the chimp kind of looks at you gleamy-eyed and then asks you to do it all over again. What could possibly be better than that? So while Penny Patterson is on the West Coast at Stanford University teaching Coco the Gorilla to sign, on the other side of the country, in New York City, there's this experiment with Nim the Chimp. That's just getting started. This was going to be the bestest and most thorough and most insightful and most wonderful ape sign language project ever. And how they were already just transforming our understandings. This experiment, the one at Columbia University, was supposed to be the most hands-on, most data-driven, most technically proficient of them all. I read about it and sold my soul to Satan in order to be able to get them to say, sure, come hang out with us summer after freshman year. I mean, who could resist wanting to talk with animals? I'm Ariel Dumros. This is a show about animals, Project Coco. And this is episode three of our series. I was a little bit worshipful because, um, whoa, he's he's the one who's going to like prove this entire thing. The NIM project, which would soon become the rival to Project Coco, was run by a researcher named Herbert Terrace. You know, he was not a warm guy. And I was like some like sub-adult transfer male who was most definitely like not particularly welcome on his turf. Herb Terrace has taught at Columbia for 60 years. My name is Herbert Terrace. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. I'm a professor of psychology at Columbia University. He's got this amazing Brooklyn accent, a prominent mustache, and some pretty cool European furniture in his apartment. He has this small harpsichord that he brought back from Copenhagen. And then when I was living in Europe, I saw this and I just had to have it. Herb walked me through his career path. When I graduated, I had to choose which medical school I wanted to go to. And I decided I didn't want to go to any of them. I didn't want to become a medical doctor, much to my mother's uh, chagrin. I went to Harvard. Not having any idea of what I wanted to do, I just had to find a career in psychology. Conquest, the search for new knowledge about our universe, our world, and ourselves. 
So it's while he's at Harvard that Herb links up with one of the world's most famous psychologists. What is behavior? What makes a man love, gamble, write a sonnet? His name is B.F. Skinner. Dr. Skinner, what are you doing with this pigeon? I'm getting ready to demonstrate a fundamental principle of behavior. Skinner spends years studying these pigeons in these tiny boxes called Skinner boxes. Every time the bird does what Skinner wants it to do, he flips a switch and gives it a snack. Whatever the pigeon is doing, when I press this switch, it will tend to do again. And in that way, I can make it do practically anything I like. The bird just learns that if it turns counterclockwise, it gets food. That didn't take him very long, Dr. Skinner. No, that's pretty fair. According to Skinner's later work, he believes this is similar to how humans learn, too. That basically, behavior is only caused by external stimuli. And you feel that this kind of reward or reinforcement plays a very real part in human behavior as well as that of pigeons. Uh, Very definitely. Not only that, but Skinner argues that this is also how humans learn to communicate verbally. That language is a behavior we pick up through reinforcement and reward from our parents growing up. So, for instance, if you as a baby, if you say dada, your parents are going to go like, yes, good girl, that's what I want to hear, and so on. You get reinforced constantly. But then this young whippersnapper comes along named Noam Chomsky the now-famous linguist and political philosopher. At the time, he was a bit of an outsider. I think it's not inappropriate to regard the mind as a system of mental organs, the language faculty being one, each of a structure determined by our biological endowment. And so he says that humans are actually hardwired for language. And this is what makes us different from other species. It's what makes us special. It seems to me that not only is it wrong to think of language as being taught, but it's at least very misleading to think of it as being learned. So what's important to know here is that Chomsky is saying language isn't something you learn. Instead, he says it is deeply ingrained in us from the start. And then on the other side, you have Skinner and his pigeons saying that human speech is simply just another behavior that we learn, just like pigeons learn to turn clockwise. And Herb Terrace is on his mentor, B.F. Skinner's side. And after he graduates, he sets out to show that to the world. There were some experiments done on teaching sign language to chimpanzees, and I was intrigued by them. But Herb doesn't think those experiments are rigorous enough. So Herb decides to embark on a rigorous experiment of his own. The basic goal was to show that a non-human could learn language whatever that meant. And nobody really had an idea what that meant. But if you could show evidence that an ape could produce a sentence, well, that would be quite electrifying because people had thought that 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 was impossible. So Herb reaches out to an ape research facility. And one day, he gets a call. He called one day. He said, I have a newborn chimpanzee. Would you like him? And Herb says yes. And he decides he's going to name this new chimpanzee Nim Chimsky, after his mentor's nemesis, Noam Chomsky. He poo-pooed the idea of language in animals. So I figured if I could get that evidence from somebody named Nim Chimsky, that would be so much the better. 
But shortly after Herb gets this phone call, your chimp is ready for pickup, reality starts to set in. I was single at the time. I could not raise a chimpanzee by myself. And so he calls up this other psychologist he knows. My name is Stephanie Lafarge. I'm a very senior lady now, 83 years old. Stephanie was Herb's former student at Columbia. They'd sort of stayed in touch. Terrace knows that Stephanie has recently remarried, has had some kids, and that she's pursuing her PhD in psychology. I had seven children, a brownstone in New York, a cooperative husband. In his mind, she's the right person to raise a young chimpanzee in her home, instead of in Herb's bachelor pad. And he also figures that she can teach the chimp sign language along the way. That way I'm an animal person. So the challenge of bringing an animal into the, uh, a city environment um, was something I was glad to take on. There's also just something about Herb. Oh, and I admired the man. He's still a powerful figure in her life. And I was grateful that our, uh, our relationship was both intellectual and sexual. So Stephanie and Herb have a history, dating back to the period after she was his student, years before. The difference in power between myself and Herb Terrace uh, enhanced the sexual relationship. Though we should mention that Herb has a different recollection of the intimate time they spent together. This is how he responded when I asked him about that. We went out one night and had a relationship once. And she makes a huge deal out of this. But by 1973, that's all in the past. The two are ready to team up together to teach this chimpanzee sign language. Stephanie agrees to go get Nim Chimsky from the Institute for Primate Studies in Oklahoma. Arriving in Oklahoma was startling. As she enters the facility, she sees this large, dark moat surrounding the facility to prevent apes on site from escaping. Some of the chimpanzees are caged. The place is also filled with primates. They're hooting from behind caged doors. You know, decrepit cages. And this is the backdrop for her meeting with Nim. When she first meets Nim, he's being held by his mother, a captive chimpanzee named Carolyn. And that's when, according to Stephanie... Shit gets real. His mother was holding Nim. She knew. She knew what was about to happen. And she shielded Nim by grasping him and covering him with her body. The doctor who's with them injects Nim's mother with a tranquilizer. And as it takes hold, there's a chance Nim's mother might fall and accidentally hurt the baby. So we rushed in. The baby chimpanzee is then handed to Stephanie, who walks out of the cage area with him. And Nim is screaming and screaming and screaming. He's holding on for dear life. Chimpanzees can grasp even at birth. His life depends on holding on. So he has taken hold of my hair, of my clothes. I'm holding him, and I can feel his body start to soften. 
Carolyn, Nim's mother, is still passed out on the cage floor. And that was the moment I knew that I had to make a pledge to her that I would do the best I possibly could to care for her baby. The project that has had at its center a wild animal is going to have a lot of emotion, is going to have a lot of unpredictability, a lot of turbulence. Soon thereafter, Stephanie has to get Nim back to New York. So she sneaks him onto her flight in a canvas picnic bag. He fit perfectly in that. It was soft. You would carry your lunch in it. So I couldn't hold him. I could only hold the bag. I Getting on the airplane, I'm pressing the bag next to my chest, hoping that Nim is feeling my heart beating through the bag because that would be comforting. At some point, Nim has pushed one of his arms, his very long arms, out of the zippered area and reaches out with this hand that's covered with black hair. And the stewardess, you know, squeaks. Uh, she doesn't scream, but she makes a sudden noise and she leaves and goes to the pilot. And we are definitely already in the air. And I think, oh my God. So the pilot comes out and asks to see what is this. And I, you know, op- open up the bag and uh, there he is. And Nim is so cute. <laughs> I don't care whether you like, you know, what what you like or you don't like in animals. A little baby chimpanzee is pretty damn cute. So the pilot was, you know, fine with it, and we just kept it kept him, you know, contained and snuck him all the way from Oklahoma to New York. So Nim goes from being this caged newborn chimpanzee to living on the Upper West Side of New York City, where Stephanie lives with her husband, this guy named Weir, and their seven children. Yeah, I was thrilled. I was like through the roof. This is Stephanie's daughter, Jenny. My stepfather had bought a um, brownstone on the Upper West Side, and it was painted yellow. It was the yellow house on the block. And it was just a classic Upper West Side brownstone. You came up the stoop through the, the beautiful wood and glass doors and all of the, you know, sliding pocket doors and old fireplaces and wood trim. We were a family that could be described as rich hippies. In other words, <laughs> we wanted the comforts of living in a lovely brownstone with air conditioning and everything else that you you might want in a home. And we also wanted to make the environment a little bit different, not chairs and couches. So we had water beds and fur rugs. And now Nim is there too. Like there's this stove in the middle of the kitchen. But it was as if that was the campfire. And so the family was always gathered around this stove on all sides. Nim could be the center of attention. He goes from person to person. Babysitting 
was a whole new experience. Nim is literally climbing the walls. There was not a lot of structure <laughs> there. But that was also fine. I mean, and everyone was totally fine and safe and nor you know, it was normal. It was it was it was good. It was great. We'll be right back. Nim's home life with Stephanie is filled with fun, games, and a bit of chaos. But during the day, Nim is going to Colombia with Herb Terrace. I never thought of him as a human infant. I always thought of him as, in a sense, an experimental subject. And he's participating in all of these experiments that have been set up to test him. Sort of like running a scientific daycare project. A typical day, five days a week, he'd spend a few hours in the classroom. We had meetings of all the teachers, and we'd make up plans. We want to teach this sign, that sign, that sign, under these particular circumstances. So every morning, the researchers would bring Nim to Columbia, where they'd teach him to sign in a small room with a two-way mirror, through which Herb would watch. Nim knew that... It was important to sign, so he would often offer his hands to you. And a good teacher would mold them and get the hands in the right position to produce a sign. Or Nim would learn to sign by imitation. Every one of those interactions at Columbia would be videotaped, which is something Penny Patterson also did with Coco. His teachers would have little dictating machines, and they would whisper into the dictating machines everything that Nim signed and that they signed. So we had very thorough records of what was going on. If you held up a pen to Nim and you took his hands and molded pen and you repeated that context, the average amount of time that you would have to repeat the training of pen would be about 7,000 times. We would, you know, put it on our list. Great. He produced it. This is Laura Ann Petito. She's a cognitive neuroscientist who helped to oversee the NIM project. And she was actually one of the few people on the project well-versed in sign language. So she helped teach NIM. But even after practicing the same sign with him over and over, seemingly forever, it didn't always stick. If you came back three days later and showed him the pen, he was highly likely not to be able to produce the sign for the item. The other problem was that engaging with Nim in the moment didn't always feel like a conversation. If I was eating a banana and he wanted it, uh, a quote conversation might be his production of a word salad in which at some point might contain the sign banana. But it would be this flurry of producing the signs that he had been trained on. But Lauren says the team figured once they looked at the totality of the data gathered by the end of the experiment, all these data points, when actually put together, would show that they'd been successful. We were hopeful that in the communicative interaction, there would be language that would be revealed to us through the videotape analyses. 
observing him through the one-way glass mirror in, in the classroom, and I would see him sign, I would sort of pat myself on the back saying, yeah, he's really doing it, just the way you would observe a kid, you know, talking. It was just progress that I noticed being made. When Herb starts the NIM project, he's hoping that this chimp will be exposed to sign language both at Columbia and at home with Stephanie and her family. So that NIM is really immersed in a world filled with sign language. But Stephanie starts to feel differently. I became disenchanted with the goals of the project, with Herb's goals. The reality was that the family, we didn't really know sign language. This is Jenny again, Stephanie's daughter. Um, and I think Dr. Terrace pretty quickly was noticing perhaps this lack of structure <laughs> in, the, in the house. Jenny was a teenager at the time, and she and some of her siblings were involved in the project. You know, it's just, you, you, you can't go around expecting, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old, 10-year-olds, you know, to be recording every movement of the chimp and, and keeping track of data and things like that. Stephanie starts to deviate away from the priorities of the project. What was important to me was, first of all, what motivated Nim to want to use words with me? Could I motivate him to want to talk to me? And to do that, I had to make sure that he felt free, as free as he possibly could. More than anything, Stephanie is hyper-focused on the quality of Nim's life. She wants to make him feel comfortable. Or at least she wants to do what she thinks will make him feel comfortable. I tried to reproduce everything that a chimpanzee mother would do, and as best I could. I breastfed him. Of course, I didn't have milk to feed him with, but suckling and sleeping in my bed. If you're a mother and you've had the experience of breastfeeding your own children, when you're presented with an infant that hardly can hold up his head, can only cling to you, it is the most natural thing in the world to offer a breast as comfort. I certainly never asked her to breastfeed Nim. Herb Terrace um, didn't think this was necessary. She wanted to treat Nim as a human infant, including breastfeeding. And I didn't object. Not everyone felt this way. It was wrong. It was, we, you can't, you can't go from our human sensibilities to another animal. There's an imbalance of power. For Laura Ann, what Stephanie is doing is deeply improper because, in her mind, it demonstrates how much humanity she's projecting onto Nim. You know, the other thing that have, has often been said is that... Ah, everything that happened in those years was just, you know, oh, you know, it was the 1970s. That's not true. You know, I'm sure they would have known this in 1898. I'm sure they would have known this in 1944. I'm sure they would have known this in, you know, it, it's, it wasn't the times. It was personal decisions. 
Okay, so while researching the NIM project, I heard about a lot of these unconventional approaches that members of the project took, right? Sneaking a chimp onto an airplane, trotting him through Central Park, breastfeeding NIM. I was probably the most taken aback by that last revelation. But then I did some research. As it turns out, this whole breastfeeding and animal thing has happened a bunch in the past. Sometimes for spiritual reasons, other times because the person who was lactating had recently lost a baby and was still producing milk. So there's that. However, in this case, it wasn't about Stephanie feeding Nim. She wasn't lactating. It was about giving Nim what she thought he wanted or needed. Affection. Comfort. And that includes doing things that almost certainly wouldn't be allowed to happen within the confines of this kind of scientific experiment today, if such an experiment was allowed to happen at all. I did see him being given marijuana. You did? And and did not uh, approve. We offered him uh, cigarettes and pot, and uh, he took to it right away. You could tell almost instantly he, he, he... I mean, he wanted more of as soon as he got an exposure to it. I was outraged. I was outraged not because there was weed or alcohol, but because that seemed to express Stephanie's interest in them rather than teaching him sign language. He's being raised in a New York City household, and that's what the people in this household are doing. But soon, Nim starts to overstay his welcome at least for some of the members of this household. You know, I'm not, I don't know which came first. (laughs) The, The sort of disagreements between my mom and Terrace or my stepfather. At one point, Nim, this wild animal, was sleeping in the bed with Stephanie and her husband. You can imagine Nim wasn't happy about that. He wasn't happy about having another male you know, that close by. That was his his wiring as a chimpanzee. They were apprehensive about other males. You could see the disagreement between Terrace and my mom building and her discomfort with his approach to it. Having Nim in the house was becoming more and more of a challenge, I think, for the, for the family. It became clear that that house was not appropriate, not uh, an inappropriate place to raise Nim. Herb soon finds a new place for Nim to live, and the project continues. But the problems inherent in the way that it's being carried out, those don't go away. Do you have any regrets about not continuing on uh, on the project? Um, hell no! It was a disaster. <laughs> they got nothing done. It was like, <laughs> you know, I always summarize it as it was the worst run of any of the sign language projects, but it was the best analyzed. None of us knew what we were doing. That's next week. A show about animals is a production of Vice News. It's hosted and reported by me. Ariel Zumros. Our producers are Julia Nutter and Pete Lang Stanton. Our production assistant is Laylee Resbani. Sound design and original score by Pran Bandy, with additional support by Steve Rowe. Annie Aviles is our executive editor. Kate Osborne is our executive producer and the VP of Vice Audio. Special thanks to Maximo Anderson for fact checking. A show about animals returns next week. 
If you like what you hear, please take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. And if you can't do that, hit subscribe. That helps too. 